0: Well, good morning. Welcome again, everyone, to South Lansing Christian Church. My name is Walter. I'm the teaching and small groups minister here, and it's so good to be together with you all, with God's people today. We, as a church, are on a journey through Scripture, and we started at the the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and we're reading all the way up through the end of Deuteronomy this fall. As we go, we've got a number of ways in which you can interact with Scripture along with us. You can tune in to a small group, join with them, and Discuss with them. You can come here on Wednesday nights at seven for Wednesdays with Wally and bring your questions, bring your hardest questions about what you're reading and, uh, and then have Wally deal with those. We're going to be dealing with a question I had this week, uh, as, as we jump into the sermon today. So, and then, and then our sermons all fall are going right along with what we're reading. This week we are finishing up our ever-present help series which has been looking at the ways in which God shows up again and again in scripture to be a help to his people he is continually faithful now we're finishing up this series this week but our reading continues and we're starting a new series next week and uh and you guys are going to be excited about this three weeks brace yourselves three weeks in Leviticus Wow, I mean, maybe a little more excited than first service was even. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Yeah, Leviticus. It's one of those books. I talked to a few people after first service. It's one of those books that, you know, is maybe boring to some of us. Sometimes we feel it's a little irrelevant. We want to sidestep it or skim it really quick as we go through our Bible reading journey. But Leviticus is really essential for how we understand our salvation and what God did for us. Multiple times, in Scripture, God tells his people to be holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. We see this in the Old Testament for the Israelites, and we see this in the New Testament for God's people for us today. We're going to dig into the question of what does it mean to be holy? And we're going to look at the ways in which God's people are distinct, are separate, are called to be a different people, and and how our citizenship is to God's kingdom and any other Allegiances, alliances, friendships that we have have to take second place to our primary allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now that's all for next week, though. And so for this week, we're here in Exodus and we're encountering another story in which God is absolutely faithful to his promises and absolutely faithful to his people, even when, or or maybe especially when, they don't deserve it. In fact, in our story today, we'll be getting up to Exodus 32, and we're going to see a moment when God's people messed up so badly that they deserved death. They had made an irrecoverable mistake. They were too far gone. That idea of being too far gone. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you made a huge mistake, and all you wanted to do was climb into a hole somewhere, go take a nap, disappear from the world, not face the consequences? Maybe it's something you screwed up at work and you, you broke something and, you know, there's retribution coming. Maybe you said something about someone and now it's kind of gotten back to them and they know it and you can't face them. Maybe it's some other relationship that you've ruined in some way. But sometimes in our lives we feel like we are too far gone. When I was in middle school, I had actually in high school at this point, I had a had a situation just like this. In middle school and high school, I used to take a vacation. Every summer, two weeks, I would vacation from our farm and I would go vacation at my uncle's farm, which was a vacation to me even though I worked just as much there because number one, Uncle Alan had a four-wheeler and so I could be there and I could uh, vacation and and experience this four-wheeler in the evenings. And number two, uh, he would pay me and my parents would not pay me for the work that I did and number three, he had a bunch of cool John Deere tractors and we had every other kind of tractor. So that's all an aside. Every summer I would go for two weeks and I had work at my uncle's farm. And, uh, and yeah, this is a slide of a, a lean-to on the side of one of his sheds that's very significant for me. This one summer, I think I was 16, I, I was there. I was filling in for his hired hand who was off on his own vacation. And, and so my, my duties for Uncle Alan this summer were to, to run the feed cart. And so you put in the hay and the silage and the corn and mixes it all up with the minerals. And then you drive down the mangers of specific buildings and you unload kind of into this area. And then the cows can stick their heads through and eat it. On this particular eventful day, it was the very last thing I had to do. I had to do one more load in the feed cart, drive to one of the farms down the road, unload it, come back and park the feed cart in this lean-to. The thing about this lean-to where we would park the cart was that there was just enough clearance if you stayed in exactly the right spot to fit the the cart under the roof. But if you got too far over, well, you might come into contact with structural parts of the building. And on this day, I very much, I backed this feed cart in, and as I backed it in, I, you know, I hit, I don't know, six, eight, ten roof joists on the lean-to, and I very much knew I had hit those roof joists, and I very much knew I could not face my uncle or the consequences. And so I, 16-year-old Walter, backed the machine in, saw the damage, hopped off, went inside, took a shower, got my truck from Aunt Deb, hopped in my Chevy Blazer, and drove two hours back to my house, and I never told anyone. Now, obviously, the first person who walked by the building saw, wow, there's thousands of dollars in damage to a car and a building. But I, I was not about to face the consequences of my actions or face my uncle. And I've, I've never had this conversation with him. I still am curious to know what he thinks about it to this day. Have you ever felt like that? Like you've screwed up so badly that you've made an irrecoverable mistake. You, uh, you can't get back from this. You are too far gone. If you felt like that, you're in good company. I've been there, many of us have been there, and I think today as we read from Exodus that we're going to encounter a people who made some promises and then totally screwed up on those promises and must have felt too far gone. Now turn with me, if you will, to to Exodus chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Exodus 23. In the story since last week, we We looked at the episode of the burning bush, and we looked at how God called Moses from this bush and sent him on to to confront Pharaoh and to bring his people out of Egypt. It was an incredibly difficult, incredibly formidable task that Moses was facing, but we learned last week that when God calls us, God goes with us. And God went with Moses, and, and so Moses successfully led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, and And through the Red Sea, this is the obligatory Charlton Heston picture this morning because we've got to keep Wally happy around here. So anytime we can throw one of those in. Anyway, so Moses headed through the Red Sea with the people of Israel and then they arrived at the mountain of God at Mount Sinai. And there they met God. And God gave them his law. And he started with the Ten Commandments in in Exodus chapter 20 and he continued on. uh, and, And we have record of that in many of these, the the. The following chapters in Exodus and Leviticus and and so on. But here in Exodus chapter 23, not only does God give the people his law, but then he promises to do some specific things. So, Exodus 23, verse 20. See, I am sending an angel before you to protect you on your journey and to lead you to safety to the place I have prepared for you. Pay close attention to him and obey his instructions. Do not rebel against him, for he is my representative, and he will not forgive your rebellion. But if you are careful to obey him, following all my instructions, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will oppose those who oppose you. When I was reading that, it kind of struck me as odd. It feels a little out of place for who I know God to be. Do not rebel against him, for he is my representative and will not forgive your rebellion? It's one of these questions that I had about Scripture. And, you know, these are the kinds of questions that you bring Wally on Wednesday nights. But as we dig into that question, imagine being an Israelite hearing these words from God. Certainly there's a a, a bit of a warning here. But more than that, there's a promise. And after all you'd been through seeing God successfully defeat and overthrow the Egyptians and then experiencing the Passover night, the exodus from Egypt, being trapped against the Red Sea, but then God showing up and rescuing you and then walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and then following a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. If you'd been an Israelite, you'd personally witnessed all of these demonstrations of God's power. And you'd had some clear reminders of human limitations. And and now having just been rescued from Egypt... If you were hearing these words of God's promise, man, they must have felt like an incredible assurance. God had stepped in to bring you from there to here, and now God was going to help you get from here to the promised land. And not, not only was God going to continue to help you, God was going before you. He was a shield against your enemies, and he was going to lead you directly and safely into the promised land. You could rely on him. I'm not sure if I were an Israelite, if I would have really needed these warnings. At least... You know, I I tell myself that. I think, man, with everything I I had seen as an Israelite and with everything God has promised, I would want to keep God on, on my side. I would want to stay on God's side because God was omnipotent and amazing and had blessed us in so many ways. And it seems like the Israelites felt that way. God continues on in verse 23. He says, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so you may live there. And I will destroy them completely. You must not worship the gods of these nations or serve them in any way or imitate their evil practices. Instead, you must utterly destroy them and smash their sacred pillars. You must serve only the Lord, the Lord your God. And if you do, I will bless you with food and water and I will protect you from illness. And there will be no miscarriages or infertility in your land. And I will give you long, full lives This all sounds really good. A long, full life without misfortune or illness. Again, an Israelite hearing this had to be excited. God was making more promises to go with them, to be with them. Think of all they had to look forward to. A a new life in the promised land. Things were really really looking up for them. And you see them come to the point of decision. Just a a few verses over in Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 3. Then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. And all the people answered with one voice, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He set up twelve pillars, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he sent some young Israelite men to present burnt offerings and sacrifice bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses strained half the blood from these animals into basins. The other half he splattered against the altar. That all sounds very gruesome to us today. We're going to talk about this when we get to the Leviticus series that we're all excited about because blood meant something very different for the Israelites than generally how we consider it and think of it. But then, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will Obey. You know that feeling that I mentioned earlier? That feeling of making a huge, irrecoverable mistake of being too far gone. Well, the Israelites were about to figure out how that felt. The Israelites had just said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And then they say it again. And then they take it a step farther and they say, we will obey. And I believe they were serious. With all the background, with the things that they had been through, they were overawed by God and they meant every word. They planned to obey. But when you read this week, you're going to encounter Exodus chapter 32. And you'll see a a nation of people who had pledged themselves to God in no uncertain terms, who clearly understood the terms of their agreement with God, you'll see them choosing to obey, to disobey God in the most egregious way possible. Breaking the first and primary two commandments, you know, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make an idol and bow down and worship to it. But then Israelites, they created this horrible idol in the image of a calf and they bowed down and they worshiped it. And even so, And this is what gets me. Even so, their story continued on. My question for you this morning is this. Why didn't God utterly destroy the Israelites, wipe them out, get rid of them, and then go on about his life? I mean, remember back to Exodus 23, verse 21. God says, do not rebel against him, for he is my representative, and he will not forgive your rebellion. And then you got Exodus 32, where the people of Israel rebel in the worst possible way, and then you got the book of Numbers where they rebel again and again and again. And for me, remembering when I read Exodus twenty three twenty one and was thinking about this, I thought, well, how does that match up with who God is? Because I think of God as, as loving, God is loved, Jesus saves, God forgives. But in Exodus 23, God is severe and rebellion will not be forgiven. And so there's this tension here. Because I want God to be safe and loving and comfortable. But God says, these are the terms of my agreement with you, with the Israelites. And they were severe and had severe punishments uh, in store for them if they messed up. And yet, despite all of that, somehow or other, somehow or other, the Israelites still exist. And so again, why is that? Why did God not choose to destroy his people? You see him kind of start to in Exodus 32, verse 9. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them. I will destroy them. And I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. And then you see Moses try to pacify God here. Verse 12, Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with evil intentions of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. And so maybe that was it. Maybe it was that Moses was so persuasive that he was able to change God's mind. Perhaps there's some of that because you see God's mind change in verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. And so maybe that's that's part of it. But I think there's maybe more to it than that. Because God doesn't forget anything ever at all. He's God. And God is always true to his promises, always. And God had made, if not a promise, a statement that rebellion would not be forgiven. And that statement was fact, it was true, God spoke it. And so once more, why didn't God respond and completely wipe out this nation? Sure, there was punishment, and the people were punished after this, and the guilty experienced consequences, but God held back after this golden calf incident. And I wonder why that was. I want you to consider this this morning, that only when you understand the severity of your own sin can you truly understand the gift of God's grace. Only when you understand the severity of your own sin can you truly understand the gift of God's grace. In that moment, Moses comes down the mountain. And he catches the people in the act. And they knew they were guilty. And they must have remembered their promise to God. And they knew they deserved one thing. It was death. You know, you and I, I think too often we don't spend much time thinking about the severity of our own situation. We all have this idea that, uh, that we're... Pretty okay people. And if we do enough good things, you know, walk uh, an elderly person across the street, support a a co-worker who's going through a hard time, maybe serve at a a food pantry and say nice things to our our relatives. And, you know, if we do enough of those good things and if we stay away from too many bad things, don't, you know, don't utter too many swears and uh, don't say too many lies or drink too much or, you know, get back at somebody who's wronged you. If we do enough good things... We stay enough away from enough bad things, and well, then we're pretty good people, and what complaint does God have against us? Well, Romans 3 tells us that we're not pretty good people at all. Just listen to this Romans 3, starting in, in verse 9. No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Sometimes we read through Scripture and we hear these word pictures and we just keep going on. That's disgusting. Their talk is foul, like stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Paul continues on to tell us in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That none of us in this room, none of us online, no one living today is worthy of even God's attention let alone his forgiveness. That's one of the core truths of the gospel. You are not good enough. You can never be good enough on your own. You've made too many mistakes. You've messed up God's world in too many ways. You've gone against God's intention too many times on your own. It is impossible for you to be right with God. And I hope I hope that the reality of your situation becomes real to you at some point. I hope that you realize it. And when you do, when you realize the severity of your situation, whether that's now or or sometime in the future, it's going to feel natural to, to want to run away and to hide and to avoid God, to consider this, oh, you know, this is just a book of myths or... To think that all of this is untrue. Christianity is just one religion among many. It'll feel like you want to be driven further and further away from God and avoid him at all costs. It'll kind of feel like being a teenager and backing the feed cart into your uncle's shed and ruining the ceiling joists. And then driving away and never looking back. But that's the worst possible thing you can do Again, only it's when you understand the severity, truly understand the severity of your own situation, your own sin, is it that you can then understand the gift of God's grace. Just like the Israelites screwed up in the desert so bad, and they knew that they deserved death. And God had warned them about the consequences, and they knew those consequences. So for you and me, it's, it's only when we recognize how sinful, how far apart from God our natural state is, and that we deserve God's judgment instead of God's grace, we then begin to appreciate God's grace for what it is. Paul continues on in Romans chapter 3. He says this in verse 21, "...but now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him, without keeping the requirements of the law." as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they Believe in Jesus, Man, there's so much here. Romans 3, if you get a chance after church, sit down and read this again and let God's word really sink into you. There's a part about God holding back in times past so that people could be included in what he has done now through Jesus. That sounds a lot like this situation in Exodus. There's a part in here about Jesus sacrificing himself for you and for me. Someone had to die so that we can live. There's a part about Us being able to be right with God now. That's incredible good news. What I want you to take away this morning from this passage is this. God's grace to you and to me is incredibly good. Paul elsewhere describes it as God's incredible gift. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift. Grace. It wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus his life. Grace wasn't deserved. We all deserve death instead. Grace. It wasn't easy. I mean, look at the conversation that Moses had with God and the way things turned out for the Israelites after that. God had grace. He chose to to continue to be their God, but it wasn't easy. Grace isn't automatic. It required incredible actions on God's part, and grace isn't natural because the natural thing for us to do is is to run away, to, to avoid God, to get out of dodge. But grace, grace is available. Grace is available to all. And it's so incredibly good. And no matter what you've done, you can always come back to God. And if there's one thing I want you to know this morning, it's this. That you are never too far from God for Him to be your ever-present help. As we wrap up this ever-present help series and look ahead to what's next, I just I want you to know that you are never too far from God. You can turn around. You can come back. You can take steps towards him because God is a God of grace. And, and we are all sinners standing at the foot of the cross, relying on the grace of Jesus. As we turn the page to what's next this morning, I want to share with you a thought from a famous Christian author, C.S. Lewis. In some of his writings in The Problem of Pain, he talks about the gospel. The gospel, which literally means good news. Good news. And as he talks about it, he, he says that, you know, at one time the gospel was easy to recognize as good news. Because no, no matter who you were in the world, you recognized that whatever deity you worshipped, that, that they were angry, angry with you and you had to appease them in some way. And so you just knew that the gods were mad at you. And so when the gospel comes along and tells you, oh no, there's only one God, one true God, and he loves you and he offers grace And yeah, you've screwed up, but he's offered grace to you. Well, that was incredibly good news. But today, we all have this idea that that we're good people. And we're really not that bad. And we haven't really done that many bad things. And God should accept us as we are. And the gospel comes along and says, oh no, you are not a really good person. In fact, you've done too many things wrong. You've screwed up God's world You've sinned and missed the mark in so many ways. Ways that you don't even recognize your state is wretched. And so the gospel, which means good news, initially sounds like bad news to our ears, but it doesn't stop there. It says that even despite your wretched state, God still loves you. He still made a way through Jesus. And you are not too far gone. God can still be that ever-present help. If that's you this morning, If there's something in your life that's been holding you back from God, if you've been running away, maybe today is the day to to turn around and to come back. Maybe today is that day to take those steps to accept God's offer of grace, to make Jesus the Lord of your life, to repent of whatever has been going on and to know that God loves you deeply. The gospel is good news and you're not too far gone. If that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. Father God, we come to you today in awe of what you've done through Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the moments as we read your story where we get to see you showing up and you having grace, offering grace to your people. First of all, mercy, and then grace as you continue to go with them and to be their God. God, I'm thankful for your grace in my own life. I pray that those of us in this congregation that have been wandering from you, those of us on the outside, that we would be drawn to the incredible gift of life in Jesus Christ. That today we would take those steps to turn around. God, I pray that those of us who are right with you because of Jesus, that we would just be in awe of here as we walk out of this place, in awe of the, the grace that you offer us of what you've done for us. God, remind us of the severity of our situation apart from you. Because of that, God, we give you thanks for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. At this point in our service, we respond to God. This is the way we do this every week. We respond by worshiping. We'll sing a couple songs. Praising God, and, and as we sing, we will respond by sharing the Lord's Supper and, and worship that way together, and we'll also worship in a little bit as we, as we give back to God and are generous. As we head into the Lord's Supper, it's around the room at the tables here, and, and that, body, that, that bread represents Jesus' body, and the juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed for you and for me. And, and so as you join with your church family at the tables this morning, Take a minute to to worship God and to praise Him for the grace that He's offered you through Jesus Christ. And now will you join us? Will you stand and sing?